Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Tuesday's class on 1 Corinthians on whatever day it is. May, what is the day today? May 17th. Okay, so I'm glad all, all of you are here. I'm not even going to say the total sum, but I believe the microphone's on and working. I believe the streaming is on and working, so I can say hello to the online folks. I believe the podcast is being recorded um, on my phone. We'll just leave it all there and press on quickly. And Connie found the red boxes. Somehow they ended up somewhere strange in the kitchen last. So anywhere there they are on the two tables. And if you could circulate them and register your attendance. And if, if you're not on there, you probably should be because it's how I keep up with people and how I would notify you with an email if for some reason I had to um, cancel class quickly. I'm not aware of any classes we won't, any Tuesdays we won't meet until we get to August. There is a week in August when Patty and I will be gone for a week, but I will let you know what that date is when we get closer because I can't possibly remember what it is right now. In fact, I think it's actually two Tuesdays the way, the way it's set up, but it's just summertime. It'll be summertime and, and a break. So anyway, That's about it, I guess. I don't really have much of the way of announcements or anything. Um, Patty, do you have anything you want to add before we get started today? We're going August 9th to the 16th, which I think picks up two Tuesdays, actually. So there we go. But it also means that we're, I'm only gone one Sunday, which is kind of priority. So, okay. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here on this Tuesday in May to return to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And um, it's just in so many ways as um, we work through this, it just it's kind of ripped from the headlines as Paul talks about unity and he talks about transformation and he talks about um, uh, really the, the, the truth about the work of your spirit and the revelation of your word and thought to us. And we just are grateful that we can come together like this with friends and we pray that your spirit will open our hearts and our minds to you and to your word today. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, friends, so I'll just put up that little map again. I don't know why I like the maps. We're back to the Isthmus. Remember, Paul is writing probably from Ephesus back to the Corinthians, um, Corinthian Christians meeting in four or five house churches, 150, 120 total, meeting groups of small, it's almost like a small group meetings, right? Maybe 30 people or something meeting in, a, meeting in, in homes. So... Um, where we were last week was, we got much further than verse 1, you'll remember. So <laughs> we went back and pulled in verse 1, and then we went all the way, basically, to verse 17. And um, uh, Paul has the usual greeting at the beginning of the letter. Then there is a time of thanksgiving that he has. This is very, very typical, not just, not just for Paul, but for the way proper Greco-Roman letters were written. So they had a standard form that they followed. I think we, when I can remember when I was a kid, we used to, in like English classes, 
learn the standard form of a letter and even names for each of the different sections. Am I right, yes, Karen? That's right. Yes, I did that. You did you do that? I think I did okay, that. there we go. All right, and so then we find out that the Corinthian church is divided over leaders, that they are having trouble being unified in Christ. And we talked about the fact that unity is a very difficult thing for us to find. Humans are cliquish. Humans are tribal. You see it played out in countless, countless ways over the course of human history and, e and certainly over the course of our own lives. But even there, um, they, they're, they're cliquish and Paul is dismayed by it. He's dismayed by some people who will claim to have a special allegiance to Paul. Um, and he finally gets so frustrated, he says, well, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you except for so-and-so, right? Because it just, Paul had a difficult relationship with the Corinthian Christians. There, some of this will come out in this letter. It comes out much stronger in 2 Corinthians. He, they, they, they proved to be a problem, to have more issues, to have more difficulties, and some of them being difficulties with Paul, I think, than um, other places that he went to. So what I'd like to do to get us started today is to go back to verse 13, and we'll just sort of read our way up to verse 18, and that's where we're, that's where we're beginning anew today. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. <laughs> it's a senior moment maybe, I don't know. For Christ did not, here's the big one, right? Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Let's, let's stop there for a second. He doesn't say this to denigrate baptism. Baptism was given by Christ. It is part of the commission that, that, G, that Christ gave the disciples. It is, it, it's part of the way that the Christian community grows is by baptizing people as they come to faith in Christ and they bring them in and their households and their children and the rest. But baptism isn't saving. It's not salvific. It doesn't create salvation. It is an entry into the family of Christ. It is an entry into the household of God. And it is a sign of God's grace because it's only by God's grace that there is the body of Christ. But I find that Christians, like everything else, can make too little of it, in which it becomes hardly more than just a little family ritual or a little naming ceremony or a little christening of the baby or something. Or they make too much of it. Because I've had younger people, come, young adults, come to me I can think of one in particular who was deeply troubled because he heard a preacher say that, you know, you needed to be baptized in order to be saved. And that's just not right. Don't, I, I'm going to hit it. Don't, don't, that's not true. I'll use my example again. Assume, let, let's imagine 
that, that you're a non-believer, but you start, you start hearing and you start going and you start coming to church and your, your heart is strangely warmed on a Thursday night as you're sitting there in a revival or something. And you call your pastor and say, I'm ready, I would like to be baptized on Sunday morning. Right? And so the pastor says, okay, Sunday morning it is. And you're lined up, you're set, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's genuine, it's true, it's authentic. And Friday you are struck by a truck. Dead. Are you screwed because of that? The answer is no. No. It is faith in Christ. It is coming to faith in Christ. That is the badge of membership in the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the church, the household of God, the family of God, um, the children of God, there's all these synonyms, are all marked out by what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is part of what we do. It's important. But Paul doesn't want the people to be confused about what he is there to do. He is there to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel because he believes that through that preaching, people are, can be saved. So turn to Romans 10 with me while you are there. This is a good, good connection. Got to go backwards, Scott, to Romans 10. <laughs> Romans chapter 10. Let's see, Romans 10, verse 12. Romans 10, verse 12. Y'all with me? Romans 10, verse 12. Romans is the letter, is right, is the letter right before 1 Corinthians. Romans 10, verse 12. You know, for many years, on my, the Bibles I used, I had the little tabby gizmos to mark out books of the Bible. They were really handy. That, I mean, if, if you find that you, that, that you need to learn your way around the Bible better or faster than you would like to know your way around it better or faster, they are a really good way to use it. It doesn't mean you have to use them forever. I don't use them anymore. Of course, I still have trouble finding Obadiah, but <laughs> nonetheless. Chapter 10, verse 12. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Paul writes that because he is calling the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in Rome to unity. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For, quote, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, that calling on the name of the Lord is, must be sincere, it must be genuine, it must be authentic. And of course the name in your, throughout your Bible is more than a label. It is, it is calling up the person, right? So, so this is a rough equivalent of those who, everyone who puts their faith in Christ, though that's not what the quote is, the quote is from elsewhere, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? 
And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? And what is Paul's job? He is one who is sent to preach. That's his mission. That's his vocation. <laughs> I remember way back, and we were talking about, you know, like when classes started and when the Bible Academy started. I remember like one of the first classes. <laughs> Sunday's your birthday, Gary, not today. <laughs> So, so um, uh, I, I was going to teach this class on Paul. It was an overview of Paul. Going to be eight weeks long. Didn't work like this. It was an over, more like a sun, one of my Sunday classes, except it was a Bible Academy class. And I decided to work off the whole Blues Brothers thing. <laughs> I'm on a mission from God. So I got the hat, and I got the sunglasses, and the whole bit, and I walked in, you know, we're going to do Paul today, he's on a mission from God. I thought it was funnier than anybody else did. <laughs> but, but that's who Paul is, that's what he is on, that's what he's on this vocation, and he, he's, clear about, he's clear about it. His mission is to bring the good news to the Gentile world without which they will die in darkness. You see, that's, what it's, that's what's at stake, right? Without which they will die in darkness. He wants, he wants to preach them the good news so they have the opportunity to come into the light. To come into the light. Like Peter writes, you know, you have been called by God to come out of the darkness into the light so that you can proclaim the mighty works of God. John's Gospel is all about coming out of the darkness into the light um, when you come to Jesus. So go back to 1 Corinthians. I'm glad this Bible has a couple of ribbons in it. Okay, so 1 Corinthians verse 17. This is right where we ended last week, but I said we were going to come back to it. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. The good news. Let's talk about the word gospel. I'm, I don't want to assume. The word gospel means good news. In Greek, it is the word evangelion, which means it was like a word of proclamation. Good news. The evangelion might be good news sent out to the provinces of the Roman Empire, carried by messengers sent by Caesar to announce a great military victory or the birth of a son to Caesar or something like that. And so this word evangelion was not, it was not a church word. It was a, it just was a word in, in common use. That meant good news, a big announcement, big proclamation, good news. Another way it's translated in older translations is glad, glad tidings. You remember that when you were a kid from the King James, bring, the angels say, bring, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. Glad Tidings is Evangelion. So it is a proclamation about what? It is a proclamation about, about Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished. It is a proclamation about the cross, about God's um, uh, rescue of humankind. 
So, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom or eloquence. Those are both two things that would be highly valued by these Greeks. Remember we said they were, they, they were the descendants, the heirs of Plato and Aristotle and Heraclitus and, and all the rest of them, all the Greek dramatists and the rest of it. And they were very proud of that and they liked to think deep thoughts and they wanted to, the skills they valued were people who could stand up and speak with great eloquence very persuasive by the nature of how they spoke and the, the quality of their words and so forth. And Paul says, ah, not that, none of that, not with wisdom and eloquence. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. One thing Paul doesn't want is for people to think that, well, you know, that Paul, he's certainly an eloquent, persuasive speaker, so this Jesus stuff must be true. That is not how he sees it. He, he feels like if he were to speak with great eloquence and wisdom in the earthly way, that that would get in the way. People would focus on that rather than on the truth of the cross. You know, he feels like the power of the cross, the power of the good news doesn't need all of that. He says about himself elsewhere in his writings, that he is not an eloquent man. The power is in the message. It's in the gospel, not in the man's oratorical skills. Okay? So, that's kind of verse 17. So, any thoughts or questions? I promise we'll get more than one verse done today. <laughs> any thoughts or questions on verse 17? <laughs> very powerful. Mine says, Christ's cross will be emptied of its meaning, and that just sits with me real hard. hard. I mean, that's the crust of it right there. Christ's cross will be emptied of its meaning because what he's saying is you'll be focusing on me and on my words and on my eloquence rather than on the cross. And, and so, yep, yep. You know, and that's, that doesn't work too well in our world, really. And think about our world today, right? You know, um, think about like TED Talks and everything else. We, we, how much time do, are we willing to spend listening to somebody who is a terrible public speaker? Right? I would submit not much. Not much in my case, I don't think. Yeah, how much time are we, are we in our culture really willing to do that? We live in a culture that is very, well it just is, it's very superficial. It's very surface oriented, not just in the words, but in a lot of, in a, in a lot of ways. And what, do you, what do you think he meant by eloquence though? Like it, and there's this flowery language thing, but he must have been speaking with a passion because somehow people listen to him. And if he was a really boring, terrible speaker. <laughs> okay, so, so Karen's asking me, what, what did he mean by eloquence? These, the way he packages these words is he means them in the context of what Greeks valued were. For example, if you were educated in this world, one of the things you would have studied was rhetoric. Yeah. 
which is basically the skills needed to persuade people. It's kind of like what lawyers do. You notice how lawyers, right, a good lawyer is happy to take either side of the case because they have the skills to persuade on either side. Which isn't, I don't know, is that good? Is that a good thing? I guess it's a good thing, I guess, I guess it is. But I'm not sure Paul would see that necessarily as a good thing. So this ancient study of rhetoric, which is part of a classical education, came out of the Greco-Roman world, and that's what he is talking about. And was he boring? He could be very boring. Now the way, I have evidence for that, Karen. Okay, in Acts 20, we're told that he is on his way from Ephesus, and he, they're meeting, and he's speaking to Ephesian leaders, and there is a young man sitting in the window, and as Paul drones on, the young man falls asleep, out of, falls out of the window, <laughs> to his death, seemingly down on the street, three floors below. So I just submit to you, that, you know, but regardless of how boring or not Paul was, he doesn't want anything to detract from what? The cross, the message of the cross. You know, there are vast portions of the New Testament in, will you, in which you won't even find the word love. And the reason is because for Paul and the New Testament writers, if you want to talk about love, all you need do is point to the cross. That provides the content for what the word love is about. So, so anything that detracts from the meaning of the cross for Paul um, is not good, is not good. So, and now he's going to elaborate on all of that in the next couple of paragraphs. And we know he is because look at verse 18. He says, for the message of the cross. So that's the connector, is for. So that builds on verse 17. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Wow. Wow. What is the message of the cross? The message of the cross is that the creator of the cosmos took on human flesh, born incarnate, was crucified and died for our sake. There is nowhere in the mind space of first century Jews or Gentiles for such a statement. For many people in the world today, there's nowhere in their mind space really for such a statement. It just seems like, like, like foolishness. I can remember reading an encounter that Fleming Rutledge relayed about a debate between an atheist and um, a believing scholar and the atheist at one point in the debate looked at the scholar and said, look, my daughter has two PhDs, one in bioengineering and one in a branch of the medical sciences. How can you expect her to believe in the resurrection of the body? And, and the uh, professor looked at him and said, 
I don't know, how large is your daughter's imagination? <laughs> right? It takes a big imagination. It takes God, really, to bring us to the point of, of, of the truth of the resurrection. That doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of evidence. There is a lot of reason to believe in a good factual, you know, evidentiary kind of way in the resurrection of Jesus. But it's, in an unbelieving world, it's foolishness. Um, now, I, I use this phrase on Sunday, so I, but I'll do it today anyway, because it sticks in my brain, and I think it'll stick in yours. When, you know, Ben Witherington, Professor Asbury, said Paul would go to places like Corinth, and people would hear him preach, and they would walk away shaking their heads, saying, oh my what a silly God to get himself crucified. Because what, what sort of God would be crucified? Crucifixion was humiliating, painful, terrible. It was the worst, worst death that the Romans had to inflict on somebody. If you're a God, you don't submit to crucifixion for goodness sakes. But the truth is, the creator of the cosmos did. For there is no greater love than this. Now one should lay down his life for his friends. Right? The truth is that God did. And it is, as Paul writes here, foolishness to those who are perishing, by which he means those who are choosing to remain in darkness. Um, I just finished up on what day, what class was it? When did I do John? Was that Monday? Monday afternoon? We did the Gospel of John before Isaiah. I think so. See, you're like me. You're not even sure, are you? <laughs> Patty's just saying, oh, they just all run together. One of the striking things about the Gospel of John is that it, John keeps hammering home the darkness and the light. That we live in a world of darkness. That people are walking around in darkness. And they will remain in darkness. They will perish in darkness unless they come to the light and that light is Christ. There's no twilight. There's no, oh gosh, you know, I don't know. We'll see. Come back to me, you know, we'll see. No, 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 you're in the darkness until you come into the light. And, and that is, that is, that's, that's Paul, that's Peter, that's the rest of them. And so, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They're perishing because they won't let go of their, fool, of their view that the cross is foolishness. That the message of the cross is foolishness. Okay? But to us who are being saved. Hmm. You notice how we use this... this Uh, present tense, I guess that's present tense, huh? English teachers. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice, what, he doesn't say have been saved. That's one of the things that in Paul people find, they drive him crazy. Because sometimes he talks about salvation like we have been saved. And other times he talks about it as this ongoing thing. So really, it's one of those things where we have been saved, and we are being saved. 
and we need to resist the notion of logic chopping it too much and grasp that in Paul's apocalyptic eschatology we have been saved and we are being saved and we shall be saved. So he writes, but to us who are being saved, meaning that we who are responding to the message of the cross, who are putting our faith in Christ, the truth of that message is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That means, well, it means the world's, the world's smarts, the world's wisdom, the world's understanding of how things work. Everybody has in their head a certain understanding of how the world works. You can't avoid it. Everybody here has one. It's called a worldview, is one name given to it. Everybody has a name for that framework of how things work in this world. And if you're ever talking with somebody and they eventually get frustrated with you and they slam their hand down on the table and they say, well, that's just how it is. What ha what's happened in that moment? You've run smack dab into their worldview. That's just how it is. But you see, all of our worldviews are not the same, right? I don't have the same worldview that Carl Sagan had when he was still alive. I don't have the same worldview as that, as that current science fellow who does a lot of the specials. We just don't. We just don't. We are fundamental, there are fundamental differences between us. Um, so there is the world's wisdom about how the world is, and then there is God's wisdom. There is God's wisdom. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise meaning all the smarty pants <laughs> in the world who think that they really know how things are all put together and they can, they can ignore God when it comes to that. Right? All those smarty pants. I never used that phrase in any of my classes before. I will destroy the wisdom of the smarty pants. The intelligence of the, of the intelligent I will frustrate. Really, really smart people need God too. I have a book on my shelf written by a really, really smart Christian entitled Intellectuals Need God Too. But see, they are so smart, and they are smart. I grant them that. Some of them got big IQs and lots of degrees, and they're really smart, 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 you know. But they imagine that if they can't figure it out, somehow it's not worth knowing. And that's their mistake. That's their lack of humility. And the smartest person of all in the last 15 years is probably Richard Feynman, at least in the Western world, physicist. And Feynman admitted he knew his limitations. He said, if you think you have all the world of physics figured out, it means only one thing. You don't. So let's look at the larger passage that this little bit, the, the little quote there in your Bible there in verse... 19 is taken from the book of Isaiah. I'm doing Isaiah on Mondays now, so that's always kind of exciting when you come across a place where Paul is quoting from the scroll of Isaiah. So in your Bibles, turn backwards, find Isaiah. Won't be too hard because it's a really, really long book after the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and the Proverbs. After those books are over, you come upon Isaiah. And we're looking for the 29th chapter of Isaiah in the 
about when we went back a few minutes ago to Romans, the same thing. How beautiful are the feet that carry the good news? Yes. So much of our Old Testament, our New Testament, has references the, back to Isaiah. It's, it's amazing. So Pat, Patty noted that when we went to Romans 10 a few minutes ago, and Paul uses the quote about the beautiful, beautiful of the feet of the messenger, which is incredible in Mendelssohn's deal. Anyway, that it is from Isaiah. Isaiah is the most important Old Testament book with regard to the formation of Christianity and the understanding of what happened in Christ and its implications. It is Isaiah. Deuteronomy is quoted a lot by its nature, but it is Isaiah. Um, and that's why there's a very famous book written a while back called Isaiah as Christian Scripture. Because it simply was, it's like, it was like the, what, what do you call it? Where did the river start? The headwaters? It's like the headwaters that bring you, that bring you to Jesus with all these pieces. Including this one in 29, the quote is from 14. Uh, let's go back to 13 to get context because, see, we're, we're good Bible readers, right? We're always trying to get context. We, we resist the notion to just read one verse. Good practice. Okay, so let's start at 29.13. The Lord says... These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. And you realize in that verse, even in this short section we're reading, that he's talking to the people of God. He's talking to the family of Abraham. He's talking to the Israelites. And then he says, God writes, God says through Isaiah, Therefore once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. What God is going to do are things that no, no matter how smart they are, they would never ever expect it never ever reason their way to it. Nobody, there's not a person in the history of humankind that could reason their way to the idea that the creator of the cosmos would be born to this inconsequential young woman named Mary in an inconsequential place called Nazareth and would then be crucified by the Romans and would then die and would then be resurrected. You know? So. Okay? So, back to Corinthians. Any thoughts, observations, questions? Verse 20, Paul writes, so, and so is it there, I'm adding it, you know, I, I dramatize this sometimes. Where is the wise person? 
Where is the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? This age, this age. That is a good opportunity for me to use this slide right here. Because <laughs> Paul's going to talk about this age more than once in this letter because one of the themes, where am I? What are we looking at here? Okay, you see that apocalyptic eschatology? That's a big fancy way of talking about part of Paul's worldview is that the kingdom of God arrived in Jesus already but is awaiting its consummation. And so we live in between the times when the kingdom, is a, kingdom of God has arrived and God's victory over sin and death has already been won, but not yet. And this is a nice, simple slide. I have lots of ways that people have tried to illustrate this. Um, of this eschatology of this age. That's what Paul's talking about. He's looking for a philosopher of this age. This is the age of Plato and Aristotle. This is the age of sin and death to which Messiah has come. And when Messiah returns, right, all that will be left is the age to come, and we are in between the times. I have other slides that illustrate it other ways, but this, this does it, and it's pretty. <laughs> right, it's got colors and all that kind of stuff on it. And so, so Paul here is saying, where is the philosopher of this age? the age of sin and death, the age of variously for the Jews, the age of Satan, um, the current age, the present age, um, and then this age is the age to come, um, the kingdom of God, the age of spirit, um, the age of resurrection. And we are still, 2,000 years after Jesus, still in between. The two coexist. The two coexist. And a mistake that people can want, yeah. What? Okay, the there's there's two mistakes that Christians can fall into, and we do it so often. One is you can completely overemphasize this one, as if there really isn't anything left to come, as if all the promises of God have already come true, you know, and and. You'll be healed just because there's promises of healing that are really about this. But no, no, it's, it's, it's called an over-realized eschatology because it's just, you're making it, you're kind of forgetting about this part. And then there's people who forget that God's victory over sin and death has already been won. And so they rob themselves of a lot of the hope and a lot of the joy because they think it's all about what will come or they take upon themselves the burden of they think it's up to them to build the kingdom of God. No, this is God's work. We build for the kingdom, but we don't build the kingdom. So we just have to learn to live in the tension, in the in-between. When we still live in the age of sin and death, and yes, we live in the kingdom of God. And if you look around, you can see the kingdom of God bursts out, bursts out, bursts out in little places and big places, even in the age of sin and death. So, Rich. I'm confused by the title, Jewish 
psychology. So is that saying that before the incarnation that there were Jews who believed that the Messiah would come and there would be this overlap in the age? Um, this looks like Christian eschatology. You know, when I grabbed this slide, I really should have fixed that, I think, because I honestly don't know why the word Jewish is up there in that. Thank you for pointing that out or reminding me that. I need to, because I'm not aware of, of any Jews who, who believed in a two-part arrival, except for the Jew named Paul. So maybe that's where this comes from, is a, it would be, uh, the Jewish is a shorthand for Jewish Christian eschatology because these ideas here these are very Jewish ideas the ideas of these two ages and a Messiah are completely Jewish ideas there's nothing Greek or Roman about them they're Jewish ideas and Paul um, we have green-haired little kids outside the doors that doesn't happen every day down here does it one of the cool things about working at a church is you have all these kids, because we have the preschool here, you, know, you, you see kids walking around doing all kinds of things. And when it's been rainy for about a week, then you can see the exasperated teachers in the hallways trying to find one more thing to keep them busy with. So good point. So why don't we, why don't we make it Jewish Christian eschatology to make it... I'll change that slide before I ever use it again. Thank you, Rich. Okay. So, all right, so, back to verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? How many people in our world today believe they just, get, they just get so exasperated and disbelieving that we can't, we can't just save ourselves. How many times in your life have you heard somebody, like on television, they say, well, why can't we all just get along together? I want to go up and I want to grab them. I want to say, honey, I'm going to tell you why we can't just all get along together. <laughs> Because our hearts are filled with sin, you know. We got a problem. You're not gonna fix it. You can't fix it. You don't like you lack the tools, you lack the will. You don't really want to fix it. So, you know. God made foolish the wisdom of the world. And just take that, take that capsulized story of Jesus, born to Mary lived, crucified, the Apostles' Creed. Who could, who, who could have thought such a thing, invented such a thing, come up with this? For since in the wisdom of the world, in verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. So this whole section is about the wisdom of God, the wisdom of this world. Two different roads, two different paths. The wisdom of God is true. The wisdom of this world is not. That's going to be God's perspective. It's going to be Paul's perspective. It's our perspective as Christians. 
verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased, happy to, through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who faith. Who faith. Remember, that word believe is all over the place here, but underneath it, it's actually the Greek word faith, or faith, or faithing. It's pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, faith. We just don't have a verb form of it in English. But we don't say, I'm, hey, man, I'm faithing right now. <laughs> or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to faith tomorrow. We use, we have, we're stuck with using this word believe, which is terrible. I think, it's, I think it's been very difficult for Christianity to deal with this because it, it turns into a head thing. <laughs> Gary, it's still your birthday. <laughs> Bells are going off. Yes, bell, just, the angels are calling to you. No, wait, no, that's the wrong thing to say. <laughs> that's the wrong way. That's the right way. Let me back up, back up, back up. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so, and sometimes when I read it, it, I will read the word faith there. Just after I've explained it, you know, just because it simplifies things. God was pleased to the foolishness of what was preached to save those who faith. Faith, faith in what? In whom? Faith needs an object. Who's the, who's the object of faith that Paul has in mind? Jesus. Jesus. Jews demand signs. <laughs> People in our world too. I can tell you how many times I've had people, in my, how many times people in my classes have said, why does it God just come down and do something big? This is not the way of signs. God's way is not the way of signs. Jesus himself said, ah, you know, I could be, I could die and be raised from the dead three days later and still people wouldn't believe. And indeed, his fellow Jews did not. So, 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks. Greeks means Gentiles. Greeks means Gentiles. So the world isn't divided into two categories, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews. Just because it's a Greco-Roman world, Greeks was a synonym for Paul and for Jews of speaking of Gentiles. So it's Jews and non-Jews. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for what? Wisdom. You know, again, Plato, Aristotle, Heraclitus, all those deep thoughts. But we preach Christ crucified. Boom, period. That's what he does. He preaches Christ crucified. This is a standard theme from Paul. He arrives into town. What does he do? He preaches Christ crucified. If you follow Paul around and listen to his preaching and his sermons, guess what you would hear? Christ crucified. You wouldn't hear any tips on being a better parent. You wouldn't hear any, a lot of the stuff that you hear in Christian pulpits today. And there's reasons why things change, I know, but still. Paul shows up. He preaches Christ crucified. We, verse 23, we preach, we Ah, you know, my problem is, Patty and I were talking about this yesterday, and I asked her if I was going insane. And she, she, she thought for a moment. 
and I decide I just get too worked up. I get too excited by this. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We should get excited about this. We preach, Paul says, we. By which he means I. That's kind of a royal we right here. Most of the we's aren't royal we's, but this is, this is one. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. There's, there it is again. Why is it a stumbling block to Jews? Because they don't even have a concept of a crucified Messiah. Much less a resurrected Messiah, much less a world in which one person is resurrected. It just seems so ridiculous to them. And worse than ridiculous, for them it's blasphemous. And for the Greeks it's just, there's that word again, just foolishness, just silliness. Um, childish, unserious. But to, verse 24, but to those whom God has called. If you were here last week, Lauren, I asked her about this and she gave this illustration of God's outstretched hands, right? Right? Yep. God has called all of us. Not every, some people, some people simply don't want the hand. But God has called all of us. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, because the, 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 these house churches in Corinth are made up of some people who were Jewish Christians and others who were Gentile Christians. Okay? Um, and the movement itself is still dominated by Jewish Christians. If you were to look at numbers, I'm sure but that it will quickly change merely on the basis of the numbers of Gentiles in the Roman Empire. As the Gentiles start to come in, it doesn't take many percentage-wise to overwhelm the number of Jews. And so people over, over time lost really any concept that even Jesus was Jewish. They just kind of lost that idea. Okay, so, but yes. Is that the same as the church now of the people that are Jews that believe in Jesus? There are Jews who, who come to Jesus and put their faith in Jesus, and some simply begin. I think the microphone just died. Is that true? No? no? no. Nope? Okay, we're good. So some simply become Christians and attend a church like St. Andrew, um, were raised Jewish, but come here. But there is in Judaism or in Christianity a group of people who call themselves Messianic Jews. And they have their thoughts on how one lives as a Jew in light of Jesus and coming to faith in Jesus. And it's a way that makes the Jews, Jewish communities some of them very upset because in their view, if you're going to go to Jesus, go to Jesus and don't pretend that you're in some way still Jewish. Okay? These people are not wrestling with any of that. We just have, we just have Jews who respond to Paul's preaching that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah, now crucified and risen, okay? and, and Gentiles which most people are in this world, 
who respond to Paul. Why they respond to Paul has to be a God thing because of the craziness of what he preaches, right? It's to You see, this is hard for us because we live in a world in which most people we encounter who will profess any belief in God are monotheistic because Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are all monotheistic religions. So monotheism seems to us to be largely the way of the world. Well, it isn't if we traveled east, but in our world, in the West, it largely is monotheism. In their world, the Jews are so weird because they are monotheistic. They believe that there's only one God, and this one God chose them, and that just all seems ridiculous to everybody else. So the Gentiles coming in have to move their worldview from a pagan pantheon of many gods and goddesses to one God and this God who got himself crucified it's a miracle that any of them responded you know it really is and the source of that miracle is whom God himself right God himself who yeah see Paul wouldn't answer Paul he, Paul would, nah, uh, 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 this, is, this, is, this is God's thing. As we'll see in just a little bit. Maybe not today. What time is it? <laughs> okay. Did that answer your question, Carol? Yeah. Okay. Messianic Jew? Yeah, he's he, so. Christian, Jew, and now his and his like, <laughs> well, I mean, okay, I mean, so, church, so let me just say this. Let, let's say I had a son who decided to become a Messianic Jew. I would go like, what, what, what? Because <laughs> that isn't how it usually happens right. to come from a Christian household into a mess. But Messianic Jews are Christians. The people they really make angry are not the Christians. It's the Jews they make angry because they want to continue to follow all the Jewish rituals and everything and calendar and the rest of it. And the Jews say, they say, well, come on. Dang it. If you're going to change teams, change teams. Yeah. Don't imagine there's some third little team that you're joining there or something. So anyway, that's it. They were Jews. But they would still say they were Jews. Absolutely. That, that's why, you know, it's one of the things that you, you, you kind of have to come to grips with is that most of us have Jewish friends. They go to synagogue. They have rabbis. We encounter Messianic Jews, synagogues, all that stuff. That world is very disconnected from the Judaism of Jesus' day. And what we do is we tend to take what we know about Judaism today and we bring it back to the Gospels or to Paul. And those are like worlds apart because the Judaism of Jesus' day and Paul's day is the Judaism. It's not built around synagogues. It's not built around rabbis. It's not even really built around Torah. It is built around the priests and the temple 
and sacrifice and that whole system. And when that system is destroyed by the Romans, because the Romans destroyed the temple, and without the temple that system couldn't exist, what Judaism becomes is the Judaism basically of the Pharisees. Why the Pharisees? Because the Pharisees were teachers of the law. They lived in different places. They weren't dependent upon the temple and priests and animal sacrifices. Well, so when that stuff is all gone, Judaism takes on the character of the Pharisees. Pharise what's called Pharisaic Judaism turns into Judaism and then that grows and becomes the Judaism that our friends have today. But it's, it's, not, it's not really like the Judaism of Jesus this day. And so you have to, you have to come to the name for Jesus, the Judaism of Jesus this day is Second Temple Judaism because <coughs> there was a Temple of Solomon destroyed by the Babylonians and then a Second Temple built. So this is Second Temple Judaism and it's still built around priests and animal sacrifices. And I don't know any synagogue in town where they sacrifice sheep <laughs> or anything else for that matter. If you're born in Israel, you're a Jew. If you leave and become a Christian, you're still a Jew. It just, wouldn't it be just like, I was born in Africa. I'm black. I'm an African. I'm a, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you can't. Are you talking, do you talk about Israel today? Well, yeah, if you're a Jew, if you're if you're, a Jew, if you're, you're born in Israel, no only what. if you're born to Jewish parents. There are people, yeah. you know, a large portion of Israel is Palestinian. The, the mayor of Nazareth is Palestinian. Nazareth is like 70% Palestinian. So even though you are born in Israel, you're only Jewish if you're born to Jewish parents. I'm just separating being a Jew and a Jewish religion. That's all I'm saying. Oh, well, say, yeah. Well, see, you could get in long discussions about Jews, Jewish religions, and how are you a Jew if you don't embrace? Yeah. So, wow, that's a big intramural discussion I'm glad they have and I can kind of stay out of. Right. If you're born in Israel, you're a Jew, but you can still be a Christian. You're a Christian Jew. It has nothing to do with the Jewish faith. If you're born in Israel, you could be a Christian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you were born to Jewish parents, you could you could abandon your parents, and I'm sure in their view, and become a Christian. But you're still born. But you're still Jewish. Are you? <laughs> Would your parents call you Jewish if you if you abandon the Jewish religion and embrace Jesus? Is it is it ethnicity or is it is it a religion? Well, I don't know. I don't know that all Jews would do that. Well, it's just, it's really for them to decide because they don't all agree. That's the thing. The Jews don't agree about how to talk about all of this. That means I don't have to talk about it. <laughs> because if they can't agree, how am I? I can't even agree about the Christian stuff. Are you kidding me? <laughs> okay, so where are we going to pick up here? Okay, let's pick up at verse 23. Well, that's not even the start of a sentence. Nope. Okay, verse 22. Okay. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach, Christ, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to them, those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what's at stake. Christ and the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God 
is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So what is Paul saying to us there? We use words and we need to understand them differently. If you were to walk around the streets of Plano and ask what it means to be strong, I think you'd get some fairly consistent answers having to do with power and mightiness and you know taking care of yourself or whatever. But for God, what is strength? Submitting to, sacri- to crucifixion out of love for others. That's what strength is. Okay? Um, so, so the way that we think about the world, and we, we think about these words like strength and weakness and power and, and wisdom they, and foolishness, these opposites, they get turned upside down. That's, that's what the cross is about. And that's what's so hard for us. This is where Christianity becomes so countercultural. Because Christians are, are it's, we are inclined to import in and use the words of the larger culture. And, we, and it's so easy to use them the way the larger culture does. And that, that subverts our mind to where we don't grasp that the cross is about turning that weakness is strength. That foolishness is actually wisdom. And the world turns upside down. There's this great book, most of which I don't think I understand, by a young man at, who graduated from Duke named Gavin Rowe on Luke's Gospel. He titled his, his, his book, A World Turned Upside Down. Read Mary's song when she meets Elizabeth, uh, the Magnificat. It is a world turned upside down. And it's just, it's just, it's just so hard. Uh, one of my practical illustrations of this, I stumbled upon many years ago, because there was a big Christian site filled with images that, for preachers to use and for churches to use, and they had long lists of keywords. So you go and you find all the keywords. I would start looking for key. I, oh, I, I need a slide on suffering. Guess what? I would strike out. It wouldn't even be a keyword in the list. Be- why? Because suffering is bad. Is suffering bad? I guess. Is it? Did Christ suffer? Was there not Was there not goodness in his willing sacrifice? even though it entailed suffering. So I would go through the keywords of suffering, sin, death, some of these things. No, they weren't there. All the words were like victory, <laughs> conquering, all these words that are very, would be very popular at political rallies. Right? Very popular at political rallies. Politicians don't, don't speak in this way. Why don't politicians speak in this way? None of them. I don't care how Christian they are. No politician speaks the way Paul does here. Why not? Because the politician wants the votes of people who are living in the world and who are part of the common culture. And so 
they're going to use they're going to use that culture's words and this is very very counter countercultural Paul isn't in the least being spiritual in the sense of only wanting to talk about deep devotional things here that aren't really connected to how the world really is this is all about how the world is really, even if the world doesn't see it, doesn't know it, doesn't have the vocabulary to talk about it, doesn't use the vocabulary correctly. So Paul says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God is God. We are not. And, and God reinvents what strength and wisdom are as opposed to what we think they are or what they would what they were in the world of <laughs> i just thought of it again conan the barbarian i haven't used that phrase in a long time okay all right so thoughts questions observations yes So Kathy's asking, she says she doesn't understand how a person who's a Christian could, could give that up and become a Jew. And some do, and I think it's because I think many people who in the past and perhaps today call themselves Christians are cultural Christians. They're, way, they're raised in households where the Christianity is very, very thin. This is the house I was raised in. It was very thin. My mother, my parents never talked about the Bible or any of that kind of stuff. It was very thin, and it's very easy to then be disaffected. And when you're disaffected, you're looking for something. And that is how I ended up being a Mormon for six months. Right? Because the Mormons came to me, and, and I was off at college, and they say, well, you got questions. We got answers. We got er answers to every damn question you got. Let's sit down and talk about them. <laughs> and I said, okay, okay, and you know, but then, and, and, and they, wouldn't let, they wouldn't really let me go anywhere. They didn't re really want me going home for the weekend or anything like that from college. They just, it was all very, but then once I got out, yes, sir? How did you come back then? You were... I just, well, I, I just went home for the weekend. <laughs> told the family that I was transferring to Brigham Young University <laughs> and my stepdad took me back he said well let me tell you a few things and he told me a few things about Mormons which I think he largely you know he didn't have a theological framework to tie it all together in but he had a few shocking things my grandfather whom I greatly loved and admired just kind of stood up and walked away from the dinner table <laughs> and didn't say a word. And of course, then it just, I just got out of that. You know, it's easy to be surrounded by something and be sort of sucked in by it, you know? And um, it just, I just stopped going, stopped listening, stopped all that. I was even baptized in the space of three months into the Mormon religion. But did it mean anything? No. Why didn't it mean anything? Why didn't it mean anything? 
because it's not true. Mormonism is not another denomination. Mormonism is another religion. It's not a Christian denomination. That's why they insist upon baptizing incoming Methodists, Presbyterians, even Baptists. Oh, no. they, have, they insist upon <laughs> baptizing all incoming Christians because Mormons understand that they are far removed from the Orthodox Christian body. And so they baptize incoming. So as big and inclusive as the Methodist Church is, they had a committee because of the number of Mormons out west who were presenting themselves for membership in the Methodist Church. And they had a big committee to study it. That's the Methodist way to study it. And even in the big open table, open tent Methodist Church, they concluded, yes, we have to baptize incoming Mormons just as we would baptize incoming Buddhists, Hindu, atheists, Jews, Muslims, because Mormonism is not Christian. Now they get offended by that, and they use a lot of words in ways that Christians don't, but that's the truth of it. And, you know, I, I admire Mormons who will acknowledge, acknowledge that, because they're not part. They won't, they have their own ways, and they have their own beliefs, and they are not, not Christian. So, my sojourn into Mormonism was not long, but I did learn a lot, and that is why one Sunday we were doing world religions from the pulpit, and we came to, um, Arthur wanted to do, and Robert wanted to do Mormon Sunday. <laughs> so what that meant for me was we had four worship services on Sunday morning at the time. I preached all four of them. I put the skates on, baby, and I was running back and forth between the services, preaching all, every worship service that was about Mormonism because I was the only one comfortable to talk about the ins and outs of Mormonism, you know, versus Christianity, why it's a religion and not a denomination. So just remember that simple statement, it's a religion, not a denomination. They, want, they would baptize you into the Mormon church because they would say, now nah, you're really coming to Jesus and we would baptize them because we would say, you're now putting your faith in Christ. The Christ who actually is not a Christ of your imagination. Did you have to be baptized back into the Christian Nope, nope, because the, the Mormon baptism is would, what, theologically, it's a non-event. It would be about like me going, um, <laughs> well, I don't know, me being baptized in the Church of Cracker Jacks or something. <laughs> I don't know why that popped into my head. Why did a Cracker Jack box pop into my head? I mean, because I don't want to be disrespectful, but people get confused about this. And we don't need to be confused about these things. We need to be straightforward and honest about it. And that is, that's the path. That's Paul's path. You see, when you, you'll see in this letter, Paul wants to be very straightforward about things. And he's willing to talk about things as he believes they are. And he believes that God inspired him in this way. And Christians came to see that Paul was inspired by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fully revealed in Christ, crucified and resurrected, that in Paul they were getting the truth. So, hence. Okay, so let's see. One day, we will be out of chapter one. 
I'm on no schedule. Doesn't matter. I love this stuff. I love you guys. So let me see if there's anything else before Patty wraps us up. It's okay. It's what I'm here for. When did the phrase Christian start being used to talk about our religion? The word Christian does show up in the New Testament. Aren't I correct about that, Lauren? I think. I'm pretty sure. Yes. But that's not the principal way. The principal way, early way, was the way. W-A-Y. Okay. Um, the way, believers, um, the saints. Okay. Uh, but Christian, I do believe, shows up just a few times in the New Testament. But it's, it's descriptive, and it isn't surprised that it came to denote those people who are Christ. Now, the problem is what? The problem is when Constantine became emperor and the whole Roman Empire began to move to Christianity, quote, quote, everybody, all of a sudden everybody was. Every census taker. Are you Christian? Well, sure, 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 sure. Were they really? No. Of course not. Of course not. And that, and I, I think that weakened the body a great deal. So I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather be part of a church where everybody's a volunteer. Everybody's here because they want to, not because they feel like they should be here. Well, I, because they want to sell cars on Monday or whatever. <laughs> okay. Anything else? Oh, Kathy, you can't start that way. We'll wait 15 minutes for that. She's asking me if Mormons really have to wear special underwear. <laughs> That's, um, I'm told different things, but I would come down on the affirmative side of that, okay? But you really, see, that's getting into all the, the, the issue is the larger theological questions, Kathy, which we'll talk about another time. So, do you want me to close? Okay, okay, so we're going to close in prayer. I actually do have a 1.30 meeting. Okay. 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 So let's pray, and we're going to particularly lift up Cora, Cora Marburger, whom some of you know. Cora moved away, and she's been participating online during her chemotherapy today. So it's a tough day for Cora. So Cora, we're going to lift you up in prayer for God's hand of strength and healing. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we do lift up Cora. We lift up all those who are in special need of your strength and health and healing to be lifted up on the wings of eagles through difficult times. Help us come to see the true meaning of wisdom, the true meaning of strength, to hear clearly the message of the cross so that we will look nowhere else to understand the depth of your love and your call to us to extend that love onto others. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.